Sounds like there's a bird in the ventilation system or something. If you guys want to relocate, I don't blame you because that is extremely distracting. Can you see it? <laughs> All creatures of our God and King. <laughs> All right. Well, it'll be okay. May the Lord grant us grace to hear the word preached. All right, so uh, for the next month, uh, Pastor Dave will be taking a break from his preaching duties in order to spend time with um, Autumn and Piper and Anne-Marie to adjust to uh, what sounds like has been a difficult schedule for them, so keep them in your prayers. Um, so for the next four weeks, it will be myself, Pastor Dave Allison, and I believe an elder from Grace Community. Jeff Kleber, okay, he'll be, he'll be preaching um, as well, so we'll be kind of rotating in the pulpit for the next four weeks, and we'll be doing a series of standalone sermons, and last week, um, Pastor Dave preached a vital and important sermon from Romans 3 on justification by faith alone in Christ alone, uh, which, as we've heard said, is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. But this morning, we will be moving a little bit further into the book of Romans to chapter 7, where Paul addresses uh, the constant difficulty and tension that we endure in the Christian life. On the one hand, we love God, and on the other hand, we still sin. We wrestle with our sin, and that's perplexing. Um, it may be divine providence that we preach this this week in light of Pastor Dave, I'm preaching on Romans 3, because this is kind of the, the flow of, of the book of Romans, and that Paul kind of, of gets to 3 through 5, those chapters, Paul labors the point that we are saved by faith, and in chapter 6, they say, well, if we're saved by faith, then why do we do anything at all? If works can't justify you, then why do anything? And he says, no, we are to obey God. In fact, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, but then we come to chapter 7, and then this is where it gets real for us where we see that we are, while we are freed from sin and alive in Christ, we still sin. And so this is where Paul kind of gets real with us, and it's a, it's a grace to us. So our, primor, our primary point of study this morning will be from Romans 7, uh, verses 24 through 25b. That's kind of where I'll be um, sitting. But in order to get a sort of bird's-eye view of this text... <laughs> what are the odds? That's written down. <laughs> In order to get a bird's eye view of the text, this is wild, I'll tell you. I will be reading from Romans chapter 7, <laughs> verses 14 through 25, to see what brings us to verses 24 through 25. So, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the infallible Word of God. 
Romans 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the truths that we have heard this morning, being reminded that Christ has paid our debt, that he's gracious to us, that he is a mediator. But we ask now that you would help us to fix our minds upon your word. Help us to go about the duty that is is required of us as your people to listen and take seriously the words that you have for us today, for your word is truth. Lord, we ask that this would be a word of comfort to those whose consciences are sensitive to their sin, and may it draw us to look upon Christ. Praise things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. Got the bird out. This is just the weirdest thing. (laughs) There's another one. He lets it out and just flies right on back around. (laughs) Should I wait until this is resolved? I feel like there's a lot going on. Let's. We'll we'll give it a minute. There's a lot going on. I'm distracted. I can't imagine how it feels for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away. We don't want it to. We need to catch it. Oh, don't fly away. The bird in the cage. Going viral. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> Our ceiling's not falling in on us right now. We don't have any water damage right now, but we got birds and the ventilation system. 
He scared. Oh, he flew away. Sorry. Flew up in the wall. Oh boy. <laughs> well, I'm glad that birds don't have teeth. You know, chew through wires or whatever it can find. Okay. All right. Let's let's pray once again. Settle ourselves. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day, and and we know that you are sovereign. And so this has happened by your will, by your decree. It's not chance. And so we ask now that you would help us to now settle into our duty as your people to hear the word preached. Lord, we ask that you would work in each of our hearts, that you would comfort us, and that you would assure us and convince us of our Savior, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask that you would do these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so Paul, chapter 7, speaking of, is wrestling with the flesh, if we have forgotten that at this point. Uh, Some people, when they come to chapter 7, they will argue that Paul is speaking of his pre-Christian experience. Some denominations hold to what is called um, Christian perfectionism. Uh, That is, at the moment you receive justification, you may make mistakes, but you cannot sin. You have received instant sanctification, and um, this is from John Wesley's writings. This is Wesleyan, and it's a prominent view in holiness churches. Um, The Nazarene Church affirms this. Um, You can find their doctrine on perfectionism in the 10th article of the Nazarene Articles of Faith. Um, I actually have a friend who is in the Nazarene Church. He grew up there. And uh, this past year, he had um, begun to take membership classes and was like, dude, I didn't know that was in there. (laughs) I had no idea, but it is. Um, And this doctrine is also prominent within many Pentecostal churches. So those who um, hold to the perfectionist view come to this text. They cannot fathom uh, that a Christian would speak in the way that Paul speaks. They cannot conceive of a Christian having these types of internal struggles uh, with their sanctification and be brought to agree with what he says in verse 15, which is, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And to be fair, there are some Christians who are not perfectionists that would still, for various reasons, due to the structure of Romans and some of the language used to argue that Paul is speaking of his pre-Christian experience. And while in commentaries I've read, I can, in a way, sympathize with some of the challenges this text can present, as well as Romans, because Paul isn't always the easiest to understand in this book. Um, But I just cannot believe that this is a pre-Christian experience. This seems to me to be the Christian experience. And I'll give just two brief reasons. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. But first is because of the present tense used in verses 14 through 25, um, up to 14, it's past tense. He's speaking of, uh, of things that were, and now he, he, he is speaking in the present tense. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is the evil I keep on doing. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It seems to me that Paul is speaking in the present tense Um, with his struggles and secondly and this honestly is the big one because some people argue about the tense 
Um, he's not speaking as one who is blind to his sin. Uh, and this is not one uh, who has not been given. Um, he's not speaking as one who is blind to his sin. Uh, the one who has not been given saving faith does not wrestle or war against the flesh. They do not hate their sin. The one who has not been converted does not care about the law of God. They do not have this inner war between the flesh and spirit that Paul is expressing in this passage. Uh, the one who has enslaved their sin looks more like the unbelieving that Paul speaks of in Romans 1, 18-32. I'll be brief but I will quote some distinguishing marks of the unbeliever that he mentions in Romans 1. Verse 18, they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. 21, although they know God, they do not honor him. Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. 23, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul doesn't share the marks of these unbelievers in chapter 1. What does Paul say in chapter 7? He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Who delights in the law of God? The elect, God's people. Paul so inwardly delights in the law of God that, um, that when he can't seem to uphold what the law demands, it burdens him, and he laments in verse 24, What a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Brothers and sisters, this is penned by Paul, um, but this is not just the cry of Paul. This is the cry of every man and woman who has been brought to their knees at the foot of the cross of Christ. They have been brought to an end of themselves and we see the Christian propensity to sin and wrestle with the flesh all through the scriptures, all through the Old Testament, example after example of men who loved God sinning in grievous ways. In the New Testament, a famous one is Peter denying Christ. He loved Christ, but he denied him. And you have this reality again expressed. If that's not enough for you, you have this reality expressed again in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Christian, is this not your experience? Do you find yourself being so frustrated with your sin nature? Don't you echo the words of Paul here? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the words of Paul Washer, aren't you tired of sinning? Paul was, and I believe that we all are as well. And so I come to this text this morning with a strong conviction that Paul is speaking from his Christian experience, and that's how we will go about this text this morning. So we come now to Romans 7, 24 through 25b. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. First thing I want us to gain from this text is some comfort to the weary saints and maybe a rebuke to some 
who think far too highly of themselves and their Christian walk. This is written by Paul, the apostle. Of all people to pen these words, it is Paul who is a seasoned believer at the time of writing this letter. He would have been a Christian for around 20 years at the time he wrote this letter. And he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he penned 13 others for sure that we know. And the encouragement is this, that nobody is ever so advanced in their Christian walk with God that they never have to wrestle with sin. There is no such thing as a Christian who is so well disciplined and so close in their walk with the Lord that they no longer see their sin. In reality, it's the opposite. The one who is far from the Lord does not see their sin, and the one who is far from the Lord does not lament over their sin, and this is the paradox of the Christian life. The more you know God's word, the greater your love for God, the more you are, the more you are aware of your sin, the more sensitive you are to your sin, and the more clearly you will see the sinfulness of sin, and this is the Christian struggle. The more you are sanctified, the more you lament your sin. Paul, while he may have had more knowledge than you, while he may have been more disciplined than you, Paul is just like you in that he too is sinful and he's fallen and he is in need of grace and mercy. I think this is something we do often when we think of the saints of old, the men and women of God of the past, how do we perceive them? People who you never met, yet you know many things about. People whom you benefited from uh, spiritually in some way. How do you perceive them in your mind? We can just walk through history. R.C. Sproul, A.W. Pink, Charles Spurgeon, John Owen, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, Augustine. It's likely that we all romanticize them. We remember their works. We applaud all that they have done for the church, calling them great men of God. Yet if we knew them personally, we would see probably otherwise, that they were in need of grace. And if we could talk to them now, they would confess the very same thing that Paul confesses here, O wretched man that I am, that there are no great men. There are only weak men. And God uses them in spite of their weakness to glorify himself as a mighty God. And so we come to this, pers- this, this verse with encouragement, knowing that um, even the apostle cries out over his sin. And he says this, wretched man that I am. In this, vo- in this verse, Paul confesses his wretchedness. He makes it known that he is in a miserable condition. Well, what is his miserable and wretched condition? Well, it's seen in the verses that lead up to 24. This is what we've talked about earlier. It is that he desires to obey God, and yet he cannot do it fully, and this is Paul's plight. Though his inner being delights in the law of God, he still does the very thing that he knows he ought not do. And there is this tension in Paul's Christian walk. And in order to understand this tension, we need to understand that there are two natures at work in Paul. There is the old man, the sinful nature, the old self, and the new nature, the new self. So what is the old man, the old self? Well, this is referenced in Romans 6, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. This is the sinful flesh. 
This is the sinful nature that each and every man, woman, and child is born with and conceived in. Every person in this room has this nature, and we are born with this sin nature because of the events that transpired in Genesis 3, when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were innocent, they were sinless, and God created Adam as a representative for all mankind. We call this federal headship, meaning that he stands in the place to represent all who are under him. And all who are under him are all who come after him, which is everyone except for Jesus. Uh, A.W. Pink has a helpful illustration to give us a clear picture of federal, federal headship of Adam in the garden. Uh, in the garden, he says, God did not deal with mankind as a cornfield where each stalk stands up on its own individual root, but he dealt with it as a tree where all the leaves and branches share the same root and trunk. If you, tri- if you strike that tree with an axe at the root, the tree, the whole tree comes down, not only the trunk, but also the branches with it and the leaves as well, and the leaves will wither and die. He says, so it was when Adam fell, God permitted Satan to lay the axe at the root of the tree. And when Adam fell, all his posterity fell with him. So when Adam, as your federal head, sinned, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world and passed down through natural generation to all who came after him. And so what has come to us in virtue of Adam's disobedience, sin and death? That is what we are now conceived in as those who are in Adam, sin and death. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this old nature, the old man, is the carnal flesh that we all possess. From Adam, we have spiritual death. We have physical death, right? Our bodies die. And apart from Christ, we would have eternal death or eternal damnation so what are the characteristics of this old nature the unregenerate who have no spiritual life but only spiritual death well their minds are darkened their hearts are hardened and their wills are corrupt those who are dead spiritually love their sin they are slaves to their sin In fact, this is exactly why people sin. It's not because they are born righteous and make mistakes. They sin because they are sinners, and that's what sinners do. All that the carnal man does is not out of love for God. The carnal man enjoys sin. Now, there are certainly individuals who, even though they are dead in their sins, may have a greater measure of charity than others. Some may excel in controlling their tempers and being disciplined. Some may live a, uh, from a human perspective, lives that are relatively moral. There are those who are, who are enslaved to sin, who truly love their families and their friends, and that is by God's common grace and the moral law on their hearts as those who are image bearers of God. But when it comes to loving God, there is no measure of love towards him. The unregenerate have no measure of love towards God. This is evident if you go to one who is in their sin and tell them to repent 
and that they must submit to God, what will they do? No. If you tell them thus, repent and submit to their makers. Thank you, Brad. The hero. <laughs> All right. So, that's over. Thank you, brothers. So, if you go to one who is dead in their sins, the trespasses, if you tell them they must repent and submit to their maker, if left to themselves, they will not. They cannot because their carnal nature will not allow it. God demands they serve no other gods, but they cannot and they will not put their idols down because they are dead. They don't have the ability to. They do not want to. That is the sinful condition that we are born into. That is the old man. Now, what about the other nature that, we've, that we see in Paul? This is the new man. This is the new man. This new man resides in those who have received the new birth, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The regenerated are those who were dead in their sins, who upon having heard the gospel have been called effectually by the Holy Spirit and had their minds enlightened to the truth of the gospel, their stony hearts replaced with hearts of flesh, and their wills renewed. Their stony hearts replaced with, with hearts of flesh and their wills renewed. In short, Christians have been made new. We are new creatures. New wills, new hearts, and new minds. And this is a divine work of God accomplished in the lives of his people. Believers have a new nature, and this new nature is rooted not in the first Adam, but in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And what are the characteristics of this new nature? Well, this new nature, unlike the old nature, is good as it comes from Christ. It's righteous and it hates sin. This new nature that comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit within his people cannot tolerate sin. This nature is only content when it draws from the means of grace, and we do that which is pleasing to God. This new, na new nature is evidenced by our minds, hearts, and wills, pleasant disposition towards God. When we were unbelievers before, we had no concern for heavenly things. But now as the children of God, we cherish them, don't we? Truths that we once mocked have now become precious to us. And now we take delight in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this new nature will be made evident in every member and faculty of our being. And this will be in varying degrees, depending on the level of sanctification. But there will be a change and a difference in the one who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. As I look out in this congregation, I can see people who have been changed by God. Pastor Dave is an excellent example. So I knew him when he was an atheist. He reviled God. He didn't want people to be Christians. He was aggressive. Why does he love God now? It's no work of his own, but it's the work of God. And it's the new nature that has been given to him. And I can see this all throughout people that I've known for a while. We see a new nature and a unity that we would not have if we were not in Christ. The regenerate have a new disposition and are now ruled by uh, new righteous principles and 
we see this evidence of the new man when Paul cries out to God, he himself, he calls himself a wretched man. And why does he call himself a wretched man? Because he sees his sin nature rightly and he hates it. Again, this is a characteristic of the new birth. This characteristic of the new birth is not only to see that we are sinners, it's not only to know that we are sinners, but it is to hate our sin. We hate our sin as the people of God. When we receive the new birth, we are given eyes to see and to believe that sin is the root source of every hardship that we will experience in this life. We will be convinced of the sinfulness of sin and hate not only all the sin in the world, but primarily the sin that remains within us. Notice Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. This is worlds different than the cry of the unbelieving around us, is it not? Our society has a poor anthropology or understanding of human nature. They look out and they see problems everywhere. They can diagnose them and they believe that people are mostly good still. They believe that people are mostly good. And if they do believe there are any people, they are not so inclined to believe that they are the evil ones. Everyone else is the evil one, but they are fine. They think that all is well, even if it is not well with others. Our culture believes they can fix whatever is broken by human means and worldly institutions. Right? They view people as not being intrinsically sinful, but mostly good who have a few things that need to be changed. Um, I think this is why we see the prison system, the prison system today working more as a rehabilitation center than it is a justice center. It's because they believe, they don't believe their job is to punish evil, but it's to get people back on track to live a better life, to rehabilitate them. But this is not how Paul sees sin. Paul doesn't look outward, he looks inward. And he doesn't cry out what wretched men they are here. He or and how righteous he is. No, he says, what a wretched man I am. The problem is not with everything around me, but it's in my very own sinful nature. And due to the new man that he is, he loathes his sin, he hates his sin. And this cry comes from a man who recognized that while he truly does hate his sin, he doesn't hate his sin as much as he ought to, because he still does it. He still does it, and that's the same for each of us. If we truly hate our sin perfectly, we would never sin, but we don't. We don't, and this grieves Paul's soul. And so I ask you, do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? Of all the things to hate, sin ought to be the easiest thing to hate. After all, it is the source of all the inner turmoil that we experience in this life. If not for the sin this world, if not for sin, this world would not be under a curse. If not for sin, this world would not be under a curse. Sin should be the easiest thing to hate. What good has sin ever brought to you? In the day-to-day, what do your sinful inclinations do for you to love it so much? It's the root of all strife in the family and all the difficulties that we endure in the world. Why do you fight with your spouse? Sin. Why do you feel anxious for tomorrow? Sin. 
Why do you have to work by the sweat of your brow? Sin. Even before your conversion, what good did sin ever do for you then? Did your acting out, your lust, make your life easier? No. Did your abuse of drugs and alcohol bring fulfillment and satisfaction to your life? No. Let's, not, let's take it out of not just how sin affects us locally in our relationships and personally, but let's look at the world as a whole. After all, Adam's sin brought up a whole cosmic upheaval, as R.C. Sproul would call it. Why do we have storms that destroy cities? Sin. Why are there droughts and famines? Sin. Why do you get sick and suffer bodily ailments? Sin. Why do your loved ones die? Sin. Brothers and sisters, the fact that sin ought to be so easy to hate and yet it is loved by so many, many, ought to be evidence enough of the unbeliever's slavery to sin. And we, all the more as the children of God, ought to see rightly and hate it. For when we practice sin, we are participating in the very thing that God hates so much that he deemed the penalty for it to be death, sickness, hard labor. Old Puritan James Smith says, the new man who hates sin finds sin to be more dreadful than hell itself. He has a deep sense of the evil of sin, and it is from this bitter root that all torment comes in the universe. Everything that causes tears, sorrow, grief, pain, misery, and wars stems from sin. And this is Paul's lament as a Christian. O wretched man that I am. How wretched is my sin that I participate in the very thing that I ought to hate so much. The very thing that ought to be so easy for me to hate. So you've seen the old man. That is a sin nature. And we've seen the new man, the righteous nature. That prompts us to hate sin and turn from it. But now I want us to see the conflict between the two natures or the two principles in the one man. Thomas Boston says there are two eyes in every believer. That is the sin nature and the new nature. And the two natures, if you haven't noticed, are directly opposed to one another. They are enemies of one another. And because they are opposed... There is an ongoing conflict between the two. When the Lord brings you to saving faith, the new nature does not make the old nature any better. It does not make the old nature any less sinful. The new nature does not improve the old nature that belongs in Adam. The new nature doesn't clean up the old man. No, the old man is as sinful as it has ever been throughout your entire life. And to think otherwise is dangerous for the Christian. If you think for a second that your old nature is better than before that you were saved, you will fall into sin. If you think that your flesh will not desire to seize the opportunity to sin when the opportunity arises, you are sorely mistaken. That sinful nature is still a truly sinful nature that is opposed to the law of God. John Owen in The Mortification of Sin says this, 
sin aims always at the utmost or the furthest expression of that sin, every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it should have its own course, it could go out to the utmost sin in that kind. So every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression, and every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head, might sin grow to its head. The old nature is still sinfully opposed to God. And so this new nature rooted in Christ is righteously opposed to the old nature in Adam, and they are enemies, which now results again in an internal conflict there is a war within the Christian. And Paul speaks to this war in Romans 7, 21 through 23. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. There is an ongoing battle. Within you, and evil lies close at hand. If we are not careful, and we place ourselves in situations that we do not know may tempt us to sin, you ought to have no confidence that you won't sin. Don't presume and assume that you won't. That old nature still lives in you. But there's something for us to take comfort in, in this truth. That while the old nature abides and cleaves to the believer, and is as sinful as it has ever been, that old nature no longer has dominion over you. The old nature in Adam has been nailed to the cross, has been crucified with Christ, and that's what we see in Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, this does not mean that we will no longer sin, obviously. We see that Paul is still wrestling with sin. We will wrestle with sin all the days of our lives, and the old self will not stop until our bodies lie in the grave. So it does not mean that we will no longer sin. What does it mean? Well, first, it means that your sin no longer has any condemning or damning power over you as one who is united to Christ. There is no condemnation for you who, you, who are in Christ. While from birth you have inherited Adam's sin and guilt, deserving condemnation, for those who have been born again and united to Christ by faith, your debt of sin has been nailed to the cross and has been canceled. You are declared righteous, as Christ is righteous in your place. So that while you may wrestle with sin, you will not finally and ultimately be condemned for your sin. But second, and this is, the great, this is the great comfort to our souls as well, when our old self was crucified with Christ, our sin is no longer our master. It no longer has dominion over your body. Your master is Christ. When the old self was nailed to the cross with Christ, Paul is not saying that the presence of sin has been destroyed. No, the presence of sin is still very near. But it's the mastery of sin that has been destroyed. Uh, I couldn't help but think of Pastor Dave's example. It's just a helpful one <laughs> of the man who has been in the military, right? He's, he's in the military, and he has a drill sergeant he has to answer to, and he has to obey every word that he says. But then when he leaves, when he exits, when he exits the military, 
if he sees that sergeant somewhere and he tells him, you know, get down, give me 20, he says, I don't have to because I am not in the military anymore. I don't have to obey you. I think it's such a helpful illustration for seeing what's happened to us who are in Christ. We don't have to obey our sin nature. It doesn't rule us anymore. Christ is our master. So we have seen that there are two natures, or two principles, rather, that reside in the child of God. The old man, the new man, that there is a conflict between the two. And that for the believer, the old man has been crucified, bringing sin's dominion in our lives to an end, though the presence of sin will remain until in, our, in, in us until our bodies lie in the grave. <clears throat> and that this truth that we just considered that uh, sin, though it will no longer be our master, will still remain with us until we die, just that truth still, though, can be an incredibly discouraging and frustrating thing, is it not? It's still frustrating. It's not your master. If it's not your master, then why do I do it? That's frustrating. I don't have to. Then why do I do it if I don't have to? It's a frustrating thing, and this is a holy frustration that vexes Paul. And so, again, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christian, are you frustrated with your sin? Again, do you hate your sin? Do you share in Paul's frustrations? You want to trust God, but you don't. You want to rely upon him, but you do not. You desire to obey him, but you do not fully, perfectly. Well, I can tell you this. While in one sense, this is a frustrating place to be. In another sense, this is a blessed place to be for you, Christian. This is a blessed place to be. You would be in a far worse place if this was never your cry. In fact, if this was never your cry, I would wonder if you were a Christian at all. How sad a state is it for men to be dead in their sins and be unaware of it? How dreadful is it to have a body of death and not even know that you need delivered of it? How terrible is it for people to live their lives being enslaved to sin and having no eye open, searching for one to save them? What a terrible condition that is for anyone to be in. But Christian, if this is your cry, that is not your condition. Your eyes have been opened and you see and you know that you need a Savior. If this is your cry, wretched man that I am, you are in good company with Paul. You are in good company with Isaiah, who in Isaiah 6.5 says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you are in good company with all the saints who Christ calls blessed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The poor are those who recognize their poverty and righteousness. This is not the materially poor. This is the spiritually poor, those who recognize it. Those who mourn are those who mourn over their sins. 
And why do people come as beggars empty-handed to God? And why do they come mourning their sin? Well, it's because God has given them the new birth. He's worked in their hearts to see this and recognize their need and run to him. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but in that passage we read in Isaiah 6-5, why does he confess his, cleanly, his uncleanness and his unworthiness? Very end, because he has seen the king. Because he has seen the king. Those who have seen the king know their unworthiness. They know their sinfulness. They know their unrighteousness. And they come to him, empty-handed, looking to him. Paul, in being frustrated with the sin, seeing that he needs delivered from it, asks a rhetorical question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul sees his need. He knows that he needs to be delivered from this body of death, wherein he continues to wrestle with indwelling sin, and he knows that he is incapable of delivering himself which is why he cries out, who will deliver me? And this is the same thing that we ask ourselves. Who can accomplish such a thing? Who can accomplish the salvation of our souls? And who can deliver us from our sin? And who can deliver us from our bodies of death? Can you? No, you cannot. Can the law? No, it cannot. It can only condemn. You who are in in Adam, that's a covenant imposed by God. Can you remove yourself from a covenant imposed by God upon all mankind? Are you stronger than God? Can you do that? No, you cannot. You cannot. The answer is there is no one. No one who can deliver you from this body of death except for that one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can deliver us. And he says, thanks to be God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the one who can deliver us from this body of death. This gives a sense, gives us a sense of hope and victory in the Christian life as we war against sin. We are reminded that this battle will not last forever. That this will not last forever. Though sin reigns in your body until you die, it's not forever. There will be a day that you die, and when you do, there will be a day that Christ returns and resurrects your body, and it will be spotless without sin a righteous body. In Adam, we have inherited a sinful nature that reigns in our bodies, and this is something that we must all endure all the days of our life on this fallen earth. But while that is true, we must not be cast down. We serve a God who has conquered death and the grave in our place. Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, came to undo the curse, and this, as the song goes, the Christmas carol, as far as the curse is found, While the body of Adam lays in the grave, the body of Christ is resurrected and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And because he has conquered death and the grave, so it will be for all who look to him with faith. 
where Christ is, there will be there we will be also. First Corinthians fifteen twenty through twenty two. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is a truth that is so refreshing to the weary soul who has been beaten and battered and discouraged by their sin. The reality of the Christian life is the uh, already and not yet. You guys have probably heard that numerous times. It's a bit of, of a cliche, but it's true, the already and not yet. Uh, it is already true. It is an objective fact that all who look to Christ with faith have been delivered from the penalty of our sins. But yet we still long to finally be delivered from the sin that reigns in our body. So we've been declared righteous, but we haven't seen that in its, in its uh, fullest expression yet in the resurrection of our flesh. In the courtroom of God, we are declared righteous, and while we are justified, we are not yet fully sanctified. Right? This is a Christian struggle through all the life of wrestling with our sanctification. We have not yet received our glorified bodies, and we will not until Christ returns in the final judgment. And so in the meantime, we look unto God for strength. We cry out to him for help, trusting that he will give it to us. It is true that sin has an ally in this body of death, but Christians have a greater ally, a more powerful ally, and that is the omnipotent triune God. The Father has predestined you, the Son died for you, and the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. God has saved you, and He has a purpose that will be accomplished in you, and that is the sanctification of your souls. Do you think that God will fail in His purpose? He will not. He cannot. Your sin nature has been dealt a fatal blow and has been nailed to the cross. And so, do you grow tired in fighting your sin? Our God never grows tired in fighting your sin. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, never tires, never needs sleep, never rests. Our Lord has conquered our sin on the cross, and he will conquer in our bodies. We can rejoice that there is coming a day that we will no longer have to ask, who will deliver me from this body of death rhetorically, Rather, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ in a splendor and glory and seeing him, you will see the one who has delivered you from your body of death. There are unbelievers among us. You have a body of death. If you did not know, you, are, you have a physical body of death that will die. You have spiritual death. And if, unless you repent, you will receive eternal death. The judgment of God. And that is the just judgment of God upon those who have broken his law. But here today is an offer of free grace. That Christ lived for you. He died for you. He was crucified for you. He was buried for you. And he was resurrected for you. And if you look to him, his righteousness can be called your own. And you will not stand condemned. But if you reject the offer of free grace, then you will die in your sins. And you will perish in your sins. 
Brothers and sisters, what we ought not do with a passage such as this one, when we see a wrestling with sin, is we ought not excuse our sin. Right? We ought not say, well, I have body of flesh, I can't help it, I'm just going to go on living in sin. No, if that's your perspective, then I fear you do not know Christ. Because if you have Christ, all the blessings and benefits that come from knowing him come to you. And that is justification, adoption, and sanctification. That comes to you if you have Christ. And so what do we do when we wrestle with our sin? What do we do when we feel the weight of our sin and we're frustrated? What do we do? Well, we cry out to God and we trust him to carry us through. We trust him to carry us through. We do not trust in our own might to conquer our sin. We do not white-knuckle grip ourselves to obedience to conquer our sin. No, we look to Christ and we pray for assistance that he would help us to conquer our sin. We look to him and trust to him knowing that there will be a day that we will no more and no longer wrestle with this nature that we have in Adam. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would work in each of our hearts today to receive the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would grant us encouragement as those who wrestle with our sin. Lord, we ask that you would help us to persevere in our faith and not be beaten down. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to not have any confidence in ourselves, but have all the confidence in the world in Christ and his ability to save us. And that there will be a day that we will be delivered from these sinful bodies stained by death. Lord, we ask that you would preserve us by the means of grace. Lord, we ask that you be glorified in our lives. Help us weak and needy sinners. Lord, though we cry out how wretched we are, may we cry out how glorious and righteous our Savior is who came to deliver wretches like us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand as we go to the Lord and song?